0: Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kevin. I serve as a pastor here on staff. I'm the pastor of multiplication and mobilization, and I have the distinct privilege this morning of bringing the word to you. I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about my wife. My wife is an avid gardener. She loves gardening more than uh, most things in life. Uh, in fact, when we, first, when we bought our first home together, one of the first things we, that we did was to uh, establish a little bit of paradise in our backyard, a, a garden of Eden, if you will, of our own. She would plant flowers, herbs, vegetables, you name it. We had this sunflower once that grew almost to the second story of our home. Um, there's this lemony thyme that she grows, that she throws in salad, just makes it like, amazing. Scotch bonnets, for those of you who have a bit of a a taste for the hot food. Um, Asparagus. Anybody seen asparagus growing in a garden before? My wife knows how to do that, all right? So she is a gardener extraordinaire. Put that beside my mom, who, by her own admission, has the opposite of a green thumb. Um, I'm not, my mom knows I'm talking about this. I'm not throwing her under the bus. She definitely, okay? Okay. So by her own admission, the opposite of a green thumb. I don't know what the opposite of a green thumb actually is, but that's what she would say. And she was notorious for killing plants. Whenever, when when I was young, and someone would bring a a plant for her to care for, and I don't know why they would, because she was notorious for this, the plant would invariably die. So, I don't know, maybe it was a mercy killing, people actually brought plants for her to, I don't know. (laughs) But anyway, you take my mom and you take my wife, and now that uh, since we've moved back from overseas, we're, we're living together, and these worlds have collided. <laughs> and one of the most comical things that have happened is this. Um, growing up, I always, there was always these little plants that were situated around the house, little plants that were just sitting in water. And I never thought anything of it until we moved, we moved in with my parents, and my, my wife pointed them out, and she said, what are these plants doing here? I was like, I don't know. They've always been there. And so what she discovered was that my mom had actually just put these plants in little bottles of water. And these plants never grew. They just stayed exactly the way they were. And every time the water would sink, she would just pour some more water in it. And so my wife looked at them, and she says, Kevin, these are plants on life support. They're not actually growing. They're not doing the thing that they're supposed to do as plants. And I'm like, yeah. You're right. And my mom, she always thought, I wonder why they're not growing, but she never thought to change the conditions that they were in. And so when, when, when this happened this week, and I was preaching, and I was like, you know, there's an analogy for faith here. There's an analogy for faith. Because we can have new life in Jesus. But sometimes other things creep in, or maybe other things creep back into our lives that cause the growth of our faith to stall. Because God's intention for our faith is that, that you would all grow in holiness, that we would grow in love, that we would grow in humility, we would grow in all of the traits that we see in Jesus Himself. But in some ways, we've actually made it possible to have a faith that remains a seedling rather than grows into a mighty oak. Last week, Pastor Andy encouraged us to have a correct belief uh, to have correct beliefs about Jesus. And today I want to encourage you to let those correct beliefs deepen your faith by warning you about three entanglements that could cause or that could render your faith comatose on life support in hopes that shining a light on those areas might actually encourage you to change your condition. So let's start with prayer and let's prepare our hearts to receive the word, shall we? Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we are grateful for you, grateful for your son. We are glad to be here together as a community of faith, worshiping you and hearing from your word. Lord, would you allow us, um, Holy Spirit, to hear you speak? And as we prepare our hearts to receive your word, God, would you just allow us to see ourselves truthfully and honestly? Would you clear away all the things that might keep us from knowing the truth about you and the truth about ourselves? Help us to take a good long honest look at ourselves this morning because we know that your desire is for us to follow you with our whole self and to grow in grace and grow in truth and grow in our faith. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. So we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John called Believe. Uh, We have moved from um, chapter 5 and 6 and we're moving into now chapter in 7 and 8. So 5 and 6 made up kind of a discrete unit. 7, 8, maybe even into 10 make up another unit. In chapters 5 and 6, if I can recap for you very quickly, Jesus begins his public ministry by healing the man at the pool. And when he heals this man, he heals his body, but he restores his earthly life, right? Jesus, in a sense, is giving him his life back by restoring his body. And now when he does that, the Jews who are there, they begin to level these accusations against Jesus, right? They don't like what he's doing because what is he? He's healing on the Sabbath. No way, Jose, don't do that. You can't heal on the Sabbath, Jesus. And what else is he doing? He is blaspheming. He's making himself equal to God. So the Jews are out for him already. And this leads Jesus to make his keynote address in chapter 5. And so if we can just get the Coles note from chapter 5, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead, says Jesus, and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And in verse 24, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And so Jesus paints a picture of himself as the giver of life, as the life giver. And this is key to understanding who he is in the book of John. Jesus moves on and he, and he performs a huge miracle. He feeds the 5,000, maybe even up to 20,000 as we've talked about here before. And Jesus provides for these people the means for their earthly lives to persist. He's providing them with food and nourishment. He is giving them life. But Jesus goes even further in chapter 6 and he calls himself the bread of life. He goes from simply giving life to being the very essence of life. That life. We see this in chapter 6, verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And then he says this in 51 I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the people are now saying, what? You want me to eat what, Jesus? Why'd you have to go and make it so weird? Eat my flesh? But this is the scandalous offense of the gospel. 55, this is what he says. He says, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. I know it sounds weird, but this is what Jesus is saying. True food and true drink. I don't want you to mix this up. This word true doesn't mean real, okay? When you eat real food and real drink, it nourishes your body. Because if you had imaginary food and imaginary drink, you would die, right? So real food would nourish your body. True food, as opposed to false food, nourishes your spirit. Nourishes you for eternity. That is the true food and the true drink that Jesus is talking about. Not the food that will sustain you in this life. But the true food and drink that will lead you to eternal life. But this teaching is hard for his disciples because they they just don't fully comprehend what he is saying. And so at the end of chapter 6, what we see happen is that Jesus is abandoned and rejected by his followers until only the 12 remain. The 12 who recognize that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Jesus has the words of eternal life. And so we know from the statement that Jesus also is the life giver. He is the giver of all life. In the totality of human existence, in our bodies, and in our spirits, temporally, eternally, Jesus gives life. So we go to chapter 7 now, when we move into the next section of our Uh, our look at the Gospel of John. Chapter 7, verse 1 starts like this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So Jesus, if you recall, is in the region of Galilee already throughout chapter 5 and chapter 6. And at the beginning of 7, he stays put because he knows that heading south to Judea will spell trouble for him. The Jews are out to kill him. They want his life. They want his head on a stake. And so he does not go to Judea, not because he fears the Jews, he doesn't, but because his time has not yet come. And here's a the theme. You're going to, you hear that throughout the book of John. You're going to hear that in our little section here in chapter 7. His time had not yet come. And so he's not going to go to Judea, not because they're trying to kill him. It's just not his time. Verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. Now, to give you a bit of a background of what the Feast of Booths is, okay, the Feast of Booths is also alternatively known as the Feast of Huts, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents. And it is a celebration by the Jewish people of God as the giver of life. It celebrates two things. Number one, it celebrates the harvest. It happens in the time when the harvest is coming in, and the Jews are thanking God for his providence, for for giving them all the things that they need to live. And so they were thankful for that. But they gathered to celebrate also in remembrance of their wandering in the wilderness. For 40 years, under the leadership of Moses, they wandered in the wilderness before coming to the promised land. And God sustained them with manna from heaven. And so in celebration, all of these Jewish people in Judea and the surrounding areas would all travel to Jerusalem. And they would build for themselves booths out of branches and leaves. They would build these booths, and they would hang out there in and around Jerusalem for eight days celebrating this feast. Now, I don't know. To your mind, you might think, that doesn't sound like fun, Kevin, to sit under a bench of branches and leaves. But that's what these people did. Because of their remembrance, because of their celebration of who God is to them, provider and the giver of life. It's a week-long celebration, and every male is actually required to go. It's spelled out very uh, explicitly in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 13 to 17, uh, entitled The Feast of Booths and What You Ought to Do. And every male is supposed to attend this one and the two others. So there are three um, pilgrimage festivals in the Jewish calendar. The Feast of Booths is one, Pentecost is the other, and Passover is the last one, and they happen throughout the year. And so, if you look in chapter, uh, verse 3 to 5, this is what Jesus says, uh, or his brother says, that, so his brothers say to him, his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So his brothers tell him to go to Judea. Now, we don't know whether his brothers actually are aware that his life is in jeopardy or in danger. I would hope that they would not tell him to go to Judea if they knew that to be the case. But what is happening in their minds is this. They've seen him work miracles. They know that he had disciples who were following him and who have, then, who have since abandoned him. But they also know that these very same people will be assembled in Judea and in Jerusalem for this Feast of Booths. And what they're thinking is that Jesus, if you perform miracles in the midst of these people, you might win them back to yourself. You see, his brothers are confused in what they believe about Jesus. They believe that he is a miracle worker, yes. But that he's a miracle worker out for personal gain. Perhaps they're even regretting that missed opportunity. Man, Jesus, when you were in Bethsaida and you were sitting on the mountainside and 20,000 people were at your feet, lapping up every word and they were ready to make you king. Man, you really, you messed that one up. And so maybe they're thinking that this was a missed opportunity, but maybe they can turn things around. And it is evident by their words to Jesus that they have worldly expectations of him. And so the first entanglement that I want to bring to your attention that could cause our growth, the growth of our faith to stall is the entanglement of worldliness. Is the entanglement of worldliness. And worldliness is simply being concerned with material things rather than spiritual things. Being concerned with temporal things rather than eternal things. Listen to what Jesus, how Jesus responds to his, his brothers in verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. The world cannot hate Jesus' brothers because they are the world. They are of the world. The world cannot hate itself. Jesus' brothers want the same things for Jesus that anyone in the world would want for themselves. They want fame for him. They want power. They want wealth. They want beauty. This echoes what um, Vijay preached here a couple of weeks ago. And the world hates Jesus because of his radical teaching that turns everything that the the world wants, that turns everything that the world worships, on on its head. When the world says fame, Jesus says, no, humility. When the world says power, Jesus says, no, servanthood. When the world says wealth, Jesus says, no, sacrifice. When the world says beauty, Jesus says, no, love. And so, would you rather have fame, or maybe not fame, maybe maybe you're not concerned about being famous in that sense, but at least recognition, would you rather have recognition, or would you rather seek the good of others? Would you rather have power, maybe not power in the absolute sense, but at least the power to determine your own path, determinism, would you rather have determinism, or would you rather serve others? Would you rather have wealth? Maybe not like oodles and oodles of money, but at least security, right? You may not want like all the money in the world, but you at least want to know that you can live from one day to the next without having to worry. Maybe you want security. Or are you willing to provide for others? I was reading this week the uh, biography of a man named Charles Mouly, who you might be familiar with. This was uh, a man born in Kenya, was an orphan, had nothing, came from nothing, and made something of himself. He had wealth. He had power. He had prestige. He had the attention of the Kenyan government. But then when he looked out into the world and he saw the plight of the street children in Kenya, he said, I need to do something about it. And he gave all of that up. He gave it all away in order to serve these kids. Would you rather have beauty? Maybe not beauty externally, but at least admiration. Would you rather have admiration? Or would you rather spend your energies loving others? You see, Jesus has demonstrated to us that he is the giver of life. And so we live our lives not for ourselves, but for others. Because that is what Jesus did. He lived and died for others. Let's keep moving. Verse 8. Jesus says to his brothers, he says, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come, verse 9. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus decides to stay in Galilee, but he tells his brothers to go because it's their duty, right? It's their duty as Jewish males to go to these feasts because it's been written out in Deuteronomy, this is what you do. But then the question that we must beg is, Isn't it also Jesus' duty to go? When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he showed us that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, right? When Jesus says he's not going to the feast, he's simply showing us that he is the Lord of the feast because his time has not yet fully come. And he says it differently here, right? He says, My time has not fully come, but he knows that his time is coming. His time is coming. And we see this again and again in the book of John. Jesus is on mission, right? And in his lordship, he is in complete control. No one's going to tell him what to do but the father. And he does what the father tells him to do and only that. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, But in private, and you're asking yourself, what, Jesus, did you go back on your word? You just told your brothers you weren't going to go, and now you are going to go? What's up with that? But here's the thing. Jesus is controlled by a divine presence, not a principle, right? Like I said before, it's about what God wants him to do and nothing else. And he also wants to go privately. That's part of the reason. He wants to go privately and not publicly. What that means is this, is that on these feast days, um, it was a community event. Families, friends, relationships, they would all travel together in big groups to Jerusalem, uh, to the place where these feasts are held, right? These pilgrimage festivals. And so it's like when Jesus was a child and he went to the temple and he got left behind, right? Mary and Joseph you know, scooted back towards Nazareth, and they're like, where's Jesus? The reason that that could happen was because it was such a community event. They just assumed that he was with everybody, right? And so, so in that sense, Jesus didn't want anyone to know that he was actually traveling to Jerusalem or know when he arrived or know that he was there, okay? And you'll see that they were seeking him out. And so he decided he wanted to go privately. And he was able, even though as well-known as he was, to, to make it to Jerusalem undetected from Galilee, which again leads me to to say that I'm pretty sure Jesus was a ninja. Pretty sure about that. So verse 11 to 13, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So the Jews were naturally expecting him to be at the feast, right? Because it's his duty to be at the feast as a Jewish male. And he was the talk of the town. Everyone had opinion of him, right? Oh, he's a good man. No, he's leading the people astray. No, what he says has authority. No, this man is demon-possessed. Everyone had an opinion. But no one would speak openly about him. Because of what? Because of fear. Fear of the Jews and so the second entanglement that that we can experience that keeps us from growing in faith is the entanglement of fear we see this in the book of John right you have Nicodemus who is part of the ruling authority the religious authority and he comes to see Jesus because he has a question for him but when does he come in the dead of night when no one can see him why because he fears the Jews the people Fear the Jews. Even members of the religious authorities, as they begin to hear Jesus, as they begin to have a heart change and understand that he actually has authority from God to speak these truths, they fear the Jews and keep everything on the lowdown. Even his own disciples, later on, after Jesus was uh, was crucified and dead in his tomb and rose again from the dead, but they didn't know yet, when Jesus came and knocked on their door, what did it say? It says that out of fear of the Jews, they did not answer. And so this theme of fear is rampant in the book of John, fear holding people captive. And so the Jews, as portrayed in John's gospel, is actually representative of something that we can fear, some fear that we might have in our life that can stall the growth of our faith. And I would say there are three ways, okay? There's more than three ways, but these are the three ways I would like to highlight today. Maybe it's fear of what people might think. You look at this faith and you like and you say, I know what God demands of me. I know what Jesus, how Jesus lived his life, and I see that my life doesn't necessarily line up with Jesus' life, but I'm afraid that if I change any more, people will think differently of me. They might think I'm weird. They think think I'm not so. And I don't want to I don't want to hazard that. Maybe you fear what people might think of you. And so that stops your faith from growing. Maybe you have a fear of missing out. A fear of missing out on particular experiences, of particular relationships, of particular things. You know that if you follow Jesus fully with your life, he does say that he he would want you not to live in a certain way. And so maybe you're fearful that if you follow Jesus fully, you're going to miss out on these things. And so you have a fear of missing out. Maybe you have the fear of the unknown. You don't know what the future holds. You can't see into the future. Nobody can. But you don't know if you can trust God fully with everything and you want to to have some control over your life. And so the fear of the unknown keeps you sitting in this faith in particular instead of trusting yourself more fully to what God has in store for you. But what we have seen is that Jesus has demonstrated that he is Lord, have we not? Jesus is Lord. And because he is Lord, we know that there is nothing to fear. That we can trust in Jesus, whatever the outcome or the consequences. So ask yourself, do I have, is, is fear in my life keeping me from following God more fully? From following Jesus more fully and from my, in, installing the growth of my faith? Let's keep going. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus teaches at the temple, and the Jews marvel, okay? Teaching at the temple is actually a regular occurrence in the life of the synagogue and the life of a Jewish person. There was actually this expectation that you would stand up and share um, about how God's word is impacting your life. Actually, when Jesus um, talked about being the bread of life in the last chapter, he actually did that in the synagogue at Capernaum. And so all of the adult members of the Jewish community are expected to share from God's word. And even Jesus, when he was at temple at, as a child, okay, it wasn't, um, he, was, he was doing just that. And, and the rabbis were marveling at him as a child because how does this child, how is he able to, um, to engage in this kind of discourse? And the same thing is happening here. The Jews are marveling because Jesus, who has no rabbinic training, he has no formal um, training um, studying the Torah. He hasn't sat under this rabbi or that rabbi. He's not like Paul, who can appeal to having sat under the teaching of Gamaliel, which, who was the rabbi par excellence of his time, right? Jesus hasn't, hasn't been part of that tradition. And so they are marveling and saying, how is this man able to teach the way he teaches? Because they are beginning to recognize that there is authority in Jesus' words. So 16 says this, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. You see, it was of paramount importance to the Jews to preserve the chain of tradition, to be able to say that my rabbi was this guy, his rabbi was that guy, and draw a line all the way back to Moses. And saying, see, I follow tradition. And originality in, in, in that time was actually suspect and, and, and shunned um, and even scorned in some ways. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. He doesn't appeal to a rabbi. He appeals directly to God, a direct line from himself to the one who sent him. 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. What Jesus is saying here is, I only do what the Father does. I only speak the things that the Father has told me to speak. And if you knew me and if you knew the will of the Father, you would know that I am who I say I am. You would know that I am sent from God. Because like knows like and is revealed by the Father. And then Jesus turns the tables on them. Verse 19, He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. These are fighting words, right? He's picking a battle here. Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me, he says. So Jesus levels his own accusation. You have the law of Moses. And this is the most important thing to the Jews, right? That they have the law of Moses. Because the Jews' whole existence is carefully constructed to observe the law to make sure that they are in the right with God and not in the wrong. He says, you have the law of Moses, yet you do not keep the law. He says that because by wanting to kill him, they have transgressed the law. They have broken the one thing that they hold dear, this one thing that they exalt over everything else, which is keeping the law. Yet they want to kill him, which breaks the commandment not to, not to murder Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? So in this crowd of Jews, you have Jerusalemites who live in Jerusalem, and then you also have the Jews who are coming from the surrounding areas who are participants in the feast. And so you have a group who know what's kind of swirling around Jesus, okay, the controversy, the stuff that's happening, and then you have the ones who are coming from the surrounding areas who might not necessarily know. And so when, you say, when they say here, you have a demon, there's two things that could happen. The ones who are there are saying you have a demon as in you are a false teacher because false teaching was related to demonic possession. That's what they thought. That's what the Jewish people thought. And so some of the Jerusalemites were saying you have a demon, which could mean you're a false teacher, or the other ones who don't know what's going on really are just saying you're out of your mind. You're mad. You're crazy. You have a demon. And these are the ones who are saying, who is seeking to kill you? Because they're not, they're not understanding that that's actually what's happening in Jerusalem at the moment. So let's look at verse 21 and 24 as we finish up this, uh, this part of the chapter. And Jesus answered them, I did one work. That work he's referring to is the, the healing of the cripple in the pool in, in uh, Bethesda. And you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the father's and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. What Moses is saying is here is that um, circumcision is in the law, right? Every Jewish male child needs to be circumcised on the eighth day. But there's also the Sabbath to take into consideration, right? There is no work to be done on the Sabbath. So what if the eighth day of a boy's, um, the boy's birth coincides with the Sabbath? What happens then? What do we do? and so the Jews had determined that you circumcise anyway even though it's on the sabbath because that is the greater good. So Jesus is pointing this out. Look. You circumcise a child on the sabbath even though you shouldn't do anything on the sabbath. In verse 22 and verse 23 he says, if on the sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? He's using an argument that moves from the lesser to the greater, right? Circumcision, healing the whole body. The whole body is greater than circumcision. Shouldn't I have healed the whole body on the Sabbath? In verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus appeals to the law of Moses because he has shown himself to be greater Than the prophet Moses right when he the miracles that he performed the he um um, the healing of the blind man the feeding of the 5,000 we've established he's established John has established that Jesus is greater than the prophet Moses and in truth if you follow me Jesus was actually the one who gave Moses the law he was there he's part of the Godhead And so because he is the one who gave Moses the law, he can supersede it by his own authority. So the problem that the Jews have with Jesus isn't simply that he broke the Sabbath or that he's blaspheming. It's legalism. The Jews' problem with Jesus is legalism. And so that's the third entanglement that you you can find yourself in that stunts your growth in faith is the entanglement of legalism. The entanglement of legalism. The faith of the Jews of Jesus' day was characterized by this obsessive law-keeping. It was just all about keeping the law, you know, balancing the scales. They even had, so they had the Torah, right? First, the five books, um, the Torah, which is the Word of God, right, the Old Testament. And then they also had the Talmud, which consisted of two books, the Mishnah and the Gemara, all right? The Talmud is also sometimes referred, the, the Gemara is sometimes referred to as the Talmud, but they should, Rightly, they should be both, the Mishnah and the Gemara should be referred to as the Talmud. And the Talmud is 6,200 pages of laws, okay? They are 6,200 pages of laws that are designed to help you to keep the actual laws. That's what, that's what it's there for, okay? And so they, they, they really took this seriously. But we see what happens, you know, in, in the Bible, and, and 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 Jesus speaks against, you know, this Phariseeism, right, this legalism the Pharisees have where it's just sanctimonious. It's it's no longer meaningful in any way. You would keep the law, but it's meaningless. And the thing is that after 2,000 years, I mean, there is a Christian legalism as well that kind of runs rampant in the church. It's not quite as overt as what the Pharisees were doing. There's a subtlety to it, but it's there. And it does two very dangerous and damaging things to us. I'm going to point these things out, and in this moment, I'm just going to ask you, as you hear what I'm about to say, I want you to take a moment and just be as truthful to yourself as you possibly can, okay? And you might, not hear, you, might have, you might not have thought this thing exactly as I have said it, but you might have thought a variation of it or some, or some form of it. And so if that resonates with you, I just want you just, just to allow yourself to sit in it and, and Respect that that's the truth about yourself for a moment, okay? So I'm going to ask you this. Have you ever thought that God ought to bless me because of the things I've done? Or maybe because of the things I've kept myself from doing? That God ought to bless me, right? Because of what I've done or what I've kept myself from doing. See, this is legalism in the sense that it's actually pointing you in in the direction of salvation by works. You want to save yourself. You want to take what you can do or what you can keep yourself from doing and saying, hey, look, God, look how hard I'm trying. I deserve something for that. That's legalism. And if you have thought any variation of that, that might be the entanglement of legalism in your life that may keep your faith from growing the way it should. Here's another one. Have you ever thought, God is pleased with me because I live a moral life? God is pleased with me because I live a moral life. If you've thought that, what that actually does is keeps you in a comfortable place because you can control what it's like to live a moral life, right? You can be like, if I I don't drink, if I don't smoke, if I don't party, if I don't carouse then I'm okay with God. Then God should be pleased with me. It actually keeps God at a distance because you don't need to enter in to the life he wants for you. You can say, as long as I I live in this way, then I'm good. But that's not the gospel, my friends. That is not what God's desire in life is for you, not simply to live morally, but to enter into his life and enter into his work of the gospel, of the kingdom in the world. So don't keep God at arm's length by simply saying, I'm going to live morally. Free yourself to enjoy who God is fully and the life that he has for you. So the verses I had here, Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's not the works that you do. It is God's sovereign choice, right? And the next one, Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons or children of God, because you are God's children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit of the son is one of grace. It is not one of law-keeping. And we can draw near to God. We can cry out Abba. That word Abba in the original language simply means daddy, daddy, or mommy, if you will. I don't know how you feel, but when my kids, you know, they snuggle up to me and they say, Daddy, even even now. Even for my 13-year-old, you know, heart just melts. Daddy, that's what you can say to our Heavenly Father because he wants you to be that close to him and that near. And so Jesus has demonstrated to us in the book of John that he is full of grace and truth, right? John chapter 1, if you remember, we have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And in that, we know that we are dearly loved by our Heavenly Father. And so that's how you battle against the entanglement of legalism, by knowing that. And so, let me bring you back to those life support plants that my my wife discovered in our house. She has since replanted them, which is amazing. But what happened was, when she took them out of these little glass jars that they were in, The roots were stunted. They needed to be trimmed. They needed to be untangled even. The leaves needed to be wiped down because photosynthesis isn't happening, guys, if your leaves are, you know, covered in dust. So she had to wipe the leaves down. She got a much bigger pot and put some really great soil in there and replanted them. And so now they have the room, they have the conditions in which they can grow and can be the plants that God intended them to be. So friends, it might be a hard truth for you this morning and it might not be total, but I think for all of us, there is some some level of this in our lives, that in some ways that our faith is comatose, that there are things that we've allowed into our lives, some entanglements that have caused the stunting and the stalling of our growth in faith. Our faith is living on life support. It's not maturing the way that it should. So what I encourage you is this, is that, that we need to do the hard work of getting untangled from worldliness, do the hard work of cleansing our minds from fear, and then giving ourselves the room to grow out of the narrowness of legalism. And this will then create the conditions for our faith to flourish as God intended this past Canada Day was my son Carsten's seventh birthday, and on his birthday, um, his brother Christian, who is nine, asked him uh, to make a birthday wish. Told him, "Make a birthday wish. What is it? What's your wish?" And Carsten, without batting an eyelash, responds to his brother like this. He says, "My wish is that mommy's vegetable garden." would grow like the fruit of the Spirit in my life. (laughs) Pastor's kids, right? And to which his brother promptly responded, not that kind of wish, a real wish, he says. (laughs) But friends, that's my prayer for all of you today. That the fruit of the Spirit, that your faith will grow unencumbered, unhindered and that it will flourish the way God intended and that you would step fully into the life that God has for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. He who was crucified, dead, and buried and was raised again from the dead and now sits sits at the right hand of your throne. God, thank you for the faith that we can have in him. Thank you for the righteousness that we have that is found in him and that we can be called your children and that we can draw near to you and call you Abba, Father, Daddy. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In the name of your son, we pray, amen.